George Catlett Marshall, recognized early on by many as the U.S. Army's most capable leader, overcame a number of obstacles to become Army Chief of Staff on the very day World War II began. He served as the de facto leader of America's military until the end of the war, and then went on to serve in China as Truman's ambassador, and then as Secretary of State, President of the American Red Cross, and Secretary of Defense. As the father of the European Recovery Act, appropriately labeled by Truman as the Marshall Plan, he is credited with jump-starting Western Europe's post-war economic and political recovery and for laying the foundation for long-term European-American relations. For this, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Today's lecture will focus primarily on his extraordinary leadership between September 1939 and December 1941 in preparing the United States of America for war. Gerald M. Pops is president, Professor Emeritus of Public Administration at West Virginia University, where he taught and wrote from 1974 to 2010. He's the author of Ethical Leadership in Turbulent Times, Modeling the Public Career of George C. Marshall, and Emergence of the Public Sector, Arbitrator. He's also the co-author of two other books. He's a graduate of UCLA and the Bolt Hall College of Law at the University of California, Berkeley. With the law degree, he entered the Air Force and worked as a judge advocate for several years. Upon finishing his military service, he turned to governmental staff work, joining the California Legislature's Office of Legislative Analyst. With this background, he commenced an academic career, first joining the political science faculty at Northern Arizona University, then completing doctoral studies in public affairs at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University, and finally joining the faculty at West Virginia University. Professor Pops will tell you that he regards himself today as a scholar in the area of ethical leadership and of the American gypsies, and as an amateur playwright. He is co-writing a play about the planet Pluto with his daughter. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Jerry Pops. I know to a lot of you that Pluto thing sounds really far out. <laughs> and, uh, but it's fun. Uh, our son-in-law is uh, involved in the Pluto mission, and uh, so we have a lot of connections with, um, with, the, uh, uh, with the whole enterprise. Uh, I want to thank uh, Graham Dozier and uh, Paul Le Levengood and our other hosts of the staff uh, at the VHS, and, uh, and also to the Flaxes, uh, Robert and Marilyn Flax, who were in the audience and had a lot to do with bringing us here. Uh, this is a wonderful occasion for my wife, Marcia, and I uh, to come here uh, to talk about a, a great man in a, in a great place. Uh, we're standing in front of the uh, Washington Monument in the Rotunda uh, at the uh, State Capitol yesterday, and uh, the association came immediately to mind that uh, 
George Marshall uh, should have met George Washington. They were certainly similar. And when Marshall was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1953, I think the most remarkable thing in the introduction uh, of the man to, uh, to much of the world was that the closest uh, comparison that the, uh, in, the man who did the introduction could think of to George Marshall was George Washington, and that was quite a, quite a tribute. Uh, Harry Truman called Marshall the greatest American of the age. Winston Churchill called Marshall the organizer of victory in World War II. Uh, we know little of them, actually. Uh, we know mostly, I think, if you ask the average American if they had ever heard of George Marshall, they would remember the Marshall Plan. And beyond that, uh, they wouldn't be able to tell you too much. But here's a man who had 50 years of continuous and momentous achievement, a 50-year period of his life. When he left uh, VMI in, in 1901, he began his military career in 1902, uh, and he uh, left uh, the Secretary of Defense position in 1951. So there's 50 years of continuous uh, service. And it was uh, punctuated uh, time and time again by uh, uh, enormous achievement. And I will have to uh, get to that uh, to, at some point today to at least tick off the major, uh, the major things on that achievement uh, schedule. But it, it is such a rich history that there's no way to capsulate it in a 45-minute period. Uh, so what I'm going to do is, uh, as Paul suggested, choose a two-year slice to illustrate his character, his capacity as a leader, and his legacy. And that two-year slice dates precisely from September 1st, uh, 1939, uh, the very day that the Nazis uh, marched into Poland. On uh, that date, uh, George Marshall was, uh, took office as Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army. That's quite a, uh, an ironic uh, uh, turn of history, isn't it? And I want to go to December 7th, 1941, uh, because on that date, uh, Marshall concluded what he called, uh, and he told his uh, biographer, Forrest Pogue, and there's a four-volume uh, book by Forrest Pogue on Marshall, which is the quintessential history of Marshall. He told Pogue that that ended the most difficult period of his life. Not that World War II was easy, <laughs> but he had, he, he had completed this, what I called in my book, uh, the Dark Passage uh, from 39 to 41. I'll give you some bare facts about his history, and then I'll tick off the achievements, and we'll go from there. A few facts. He was born on the last day of 1880, uh, December 31st, in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. He is a Pennsylvanian. He went to VMI. He entered the Army as a second lieutenant in 1902. He married Lily Cole of, uh, uh, of uh, Lexington, uh, and she died in 1927 without children. He remarried uh, one Catherine Tupper Brown in 1928. She had uh, three children. So uh, 
he was a, uh, she was a widow. Her husband was a lawyer who was murdered. And George met her uh, at, uh, uh, at Fort Benning in 1928, and they married soon afterwards. So that gave uh, George Marshall three stepchildren. He uh, retired three times. How's that? <laughs> uh, first in uh, November of 1945, when he left the position of chief of staff. He re then he was brought back by uh, Harry Truman and sent to uh, China. And then he came back as secretary of state. And he retired again uh, in January of uh, 1949 from the secretary of state position. He was from illness. Uh, he recovered and uh, he became the, ch uh, the president of the uh, American Red Cross, and then Truman brought him in as Secretary of Defense after the Korean War started, and he retired for a third time uh, in, uh, in late, uh, I think it was September of 1951. So he had three retirements. I can't restrain from at least ticking off the achievements uh, and these are only some of them, the, the most memorable, perhaps. He was Army Chief of Staff uh, from uh, September 1939 through November of 1945, the entire duration of the war. Uh, he was the major designer and leader of the Integrated Allied Military Alliance with the United Kingdom. He wrote and directed the operation plan for the key battle of World War I, the Moose Argonne uh, campaign. He was called uh, by uh, Fox Connor, General Connor, and others in World War I. He had the appellation of the, uh, as the Wizard of Logistics. And he uh, actually, uh, well, I, it's, it's the, the problem with giving this kind of a talk is every time you list one of those achievements, you want to rush into something. And if I did that, I would spend 45 minutes talking about that one thing. So I'll move on. He uh, protected U.S. Uh, base and railroads uh, to the sea and keeping peace among Chinese warlords from 1925 to 1927. Uh, in, then he revolutionized Army officer education as dean of instruction at Fort Benning from 1927 to 1932. Totally changed the way military education was uh, was approached. He he left the study. He 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 left the study of major battles and classic battles, and he he always said he was going to prepare his officers for the next war, not the not the last war. Uh, and he in that process, when he was at Benning, he began to identify. He already had a great knowledge of army personnel, but he began to identify instructors and students who had special talents. And that little black book that he began to keep uh, be became the, was translated into 84 generals in uh, World War II. Uh, some of those people, uh, Omar Bradley, uh, George Patton, uh, Hodges, Ridgeway, we were just talking about Ridgeway at, at lunch a bit ago, uh, Matthew Ridgeway, Walton Walker, uh, Mark Clark, 
uh, Truscott, uh, and on and on. Uh, there's, there's so many generals that he minted. These were known as marshal men. He organized and led the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps in the southeast and the northwest in, from 1933 to 1938. Uh, he uh, was, this is probably the great joy of his life, actually, he told Pogue. Uh, he uh, loved to, deal, to work with young men and to see them turn their lives around. And uh, he provided uh, the, uh, much of the model for how the CCC was operated. This was in sharp contrast to MacArthur, who uh, basically told Roosevelt to take a hike when uh, Roosevelt asked him to lead the CCC. Uh, MacArthur did it reluctantly, but needed people like Marshall to really do the work. He built an army of 8 million men and women in four years. Uh, he was the special ambassador to China, 1945-46, attempted to negotiate peace between Shang and Mao, an impossible task with some remarkable early success. He was Secretary of State from 47 to 49, responsible for creating the Marshall Plan and launching NATO. He organized the, uh, reorganized the Department of War from 1940 to 1942. More about that later. He resuscitated the American Red Cross, uh, which was in a terrible uh, state when he took over in 1949. And one of the most fascinating things about this, I have to tell you, uh, about Marshall's career, he identified there were 19 million young women who uh, the American Junior Red Cross that he had conceived as kind of an early Peace Corps, was going to turn those women and those girls loose on the world uh, to do uh, uh, world improvement projects and, and uh, do good works around the world. He never got to that point because the Korean War came along and Truman uh, pulled him out for the, that duty. Uh, he um, built the National Guard into an effective fighting force uh, and that was a long period of time, from 1907 to 1941. He was a major leader. He created the Women's Army uh, Corps uh, and uh, sold that to Congress, and they enacted that uh, legislation during World War II. Uh, he mobilized and brought into action the Tuskegee Airmen, as well as the 92nd Infantry Division, the African-American Division, and the 442nd uh, Regiment, the Nisei uh, fighting unit that fought in, um, in Italy. Uh, are you getting tired of this list? <laughs> <laughs> he led the effort to build strategic air power. That began in 1938 uh, with his association with Frank Andrews and uh, Hap Arnold. Uh, and uh, basically uh, became the champion of air power and built uh, the Army Air Corps into a formidable power and gave it lots of leeway to operate in World War II. Uh, and uh, here's something you may not know. He launched the civilian arm for administering civil governance in conquered and occupied territories at the University of Virginia, in 1942, in other words, he began planning for the uh, administration 
of conquered and, uh, and uh, occupied territories in 1942. Talk about vision. Well, I don't have time for more. And I, I won't compare, as tempting as it is, I won't compare Marshall to the, the more famous generals of World War II. Why is that? Uh, Eisenhower, MacArthur, Patton, uh, probably are better known to the American mind uh, than George Marshall, believe it or not. Uh, I will say that few of us would have heard of these men had Marshall not selected, nurtured, and supported them. Had he retired in 1938 at age 57, he would have gone down in history as one of our greatest soldiers, as a planner, as an educator, as an innovator, and as an administrator. But he had more work to do. Roosevelt, thank goodness, selected him as his chief of staff in 1939. Why? Well, he had good recommendations. Uh, Pershing was very fond of him. He worked closely with Pershing uh, for after World War I. Uh, and, uh, and he was, as uh, Paul mentioned earlier, he was just regarded as uh, the, best, the best military man we had. Uh, he was so widely respected. And, uh, you know, he, he first met Roosevelt in 1938 at a meeting at the White House. Uh, and, and he was a deputy uh, chief of staff at that point. And Roosevelt had brought a, together a number of military men to talk about how he was going to approach the defense of uh, France and Britain. And he was going to uh, sell uh, convinced Congress to uh, sell lots of airplanes to the French. Uh, and he went around the room and asked everybody what they thought of his plan to build so many planes and ship them to the French. And everybody said, yes, sir, that's a great idea. Yes, Mr. President, uh, sounds good. And they got to, uh, to Marshall and Roosevelt said, George, that's the last time he ever called him George, by the way. He said, George, what do you think of the idea? He says, well, Mr. President, I don't think it's a good idea and here's why. Uh, you, can't, you can't have planes without crews. You can't have crews without a base. You can't hold the bases close enough to enemy territory without uh, land troops that take those bases and establish those bases. Uh, for every plane that you think you could, you're building, you have to spend five times as much and prepare for years uh, in order to uh, support that plane that you're going to put into the air. And he said, thank you very much. The meeting ended. Everybody, uh, 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 everybody congratulated Marshall after the, uh, after the meeting on his, on his about to end military career. <laughs> <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, a few months later, uh, when he needed a new chief of staff, uh, Roosevelt turned to, to Marshall, to his very great credit. Now. Here's the major part of the talk. I want you to put yourself in Marshall's place on September 1st, 1939. You've just gotten this job. You are 58 years old, you're in good health, but with a history of two mental breakdowns, uh, both from overwork. Uh, you've always coveted this top leadership job to cap your career, but you did not lobby for it. 
here you are. You've been selected to lead America. Earlier today, World War II began. Uh, and your first act was to put the military, uh, the army on alert. Uh, you have the 17th strongest army in the world, just behind Romania. 129,000 in uniform, including, uh, including the Air Corps. 105,000 in state national guards. You're limited by the National Defense Act, which was enacted way back in 1921, uh, to, and it limits uh, the, the size of the Army to 255,000, I believe it was. Uh, you have two field-ready regiments. That's all, two. Uh, you're, they're equipped, and the whole army is equipped with World War I equipment. Some are training with wooden rifles. You have a few old planes, and no industrial war industry. It's starting to look like a good job, isn't it? You take a look around, you see uh, about what your support base is out there, and you find out that America does not want to get involved in a war. Uh, they passed the Neutrality Act. You're not supposed to uh, send any arms or support to allies. Uh, that's uh, illegal. Uh, your boss just recently at Chautauqua Institution in New, in, uh, New York uh, pledged to keep us out of war. He's going to run in 1940, and he's saying that every day. Uh, we will not go to war. Congress is dominated by an isolationist wing. Public opinion is absolutely against getting involved in either Europe's wars or saving Jews. You know there is a strong likelihood of the U.S. being drawn into a two-front war. Your job is to prepare the Army for that. If you failed, you know that the Army and the Air Force would be ineffective for at least the first year of that war. You're sitting ducks if you can't prepare in advance. Now, the, that's not the end of your problems. <laughs> the public, the Congress, and the President all prefer air and naval power to ground troops. They're, they're much sexier. They're much more interesting. They're, they look like the technological wave. That's what you're supposed to do. And your boss, FDR, is a naval man. Make things worse. Your personal relationship to FDR is distant, cold, and formal. Different kinds of people. The War Department is poorly organized for action. Uh, the, in peacetime, the uh, chief of staff has advisory powers only and he has to work through the Secretary of War. The Secretary of War is an isolationist. He is fighting constantly with the Assistant Secretary of War, Lewis Johnson. The, the Secretary of War is uh, Harry Woodring, uh, and Johnson and he uh, fight like cats and dogs. They, they can't agree to anything. Uh, you have 61 offices reporting to you that you're responsible for, uh, and Almost all of them have, uh, many of them have their independent political links to the Congress, so you don't have any control over them. 
but you're supposed you have uh, technical responsibility for them. Uh, in other words, uh, you've got some very big problems. Uh, I'm not done. You have a, a lack of talent in the general staff and also in the combat commands. You've got very old uh, World War I or officers. Uh, and you saw enough in World War I to realize that uh, a key factor in uh, combat command is vigor. And these are some old dudes. They may, they may be knowledgeable and loyal and so forth, but they're not the kind of people that you want to fight the war with. So you're, you're facing that. Uh, and then you have the Neutrality Act, last but not least, which your government has negotiated in the past. Uh, you can't send any troops out of the U.S. other than U.S. territories. Uh, that's not permitted. And you can't help the allies. You can't supply them. You can't, uh, you can't even, uh, there's, there's no way you can help. So where do you begin? What do you do? Uh, search your soul. Uh, look into yourself. Find out what strengths you have. Uh, and, you know, what, what would you do? And, and it seems to me that one, you could analyze it several ways. Uh, you know, what, what would I do? Uh, well, one thing you can do is just sort of go along, uh, try to improve the uh, quality of the army that you have, lobby for additional increases, um, and uh, so forth. Uh, try to, to sell the president on the need for uh, more army strength. Uh, you could do that, or you could do an end run. You could identify, uh, let's say, a, a very uh, active uh, group in Congress, and there is one that is uh, for preparation, and sell it and give them the lead and sort of help them uh, indirectly. Uh, or you could, uh, you know, just go along and then uh, when the war starts, uh, resign. <laughs> now I'm going to, going to tell you what Marshall did. First of all, mindset. Uh, Marshall, it's not clear whether Marshall thought a war was coming, but his mindset was that his job was to prepare for a war, a two-front war. In other words, he imagined the worst. He had a, he had a naval accomplice, uh, uh, Stark. Betty was his uh, nickname, Betty Stark. What was his first name, Harold? Harold Stark. And it was fortunate, too. Stark was a very good man. And together, they, uh, they uh, both uh, wanted to uh, prepare for war. They thought, they thought it was a distinct possibility, if not a probability. And that was their job. Uh, and that's what they would do. The next thing that Marshall uh, tried to do was to get closer to FDR. Now, how did he do that? He used some intermediaries. Uh, Roosevelt wanted him to come to the White House, uh, tell jokes, drink brandy, uh, you know, one of the, be a good old boy and, uh, and get into that kind of a mindset. Uh, and he sent uh, Harry Hopkins over to uh, talk to Marshall and, and Hopkins told him, this is what the president would like you to come over and have a drink and talk about this and that. And 
Marshall refused. He said, that's not me. He said, that's not the way I operate. I'm sorry. Uh, but he used Hopkins. He found a lot of people close to Roosevelt that uh, he trusted and who trusted him. Uh, Henry Morgenthau was one. Uh, Harry Hopkins, I mentioned. Bernard Baruch, uh, and there were, there were others, too. Uh, and he used these uh, to get the ideas, some of, some of uh, Roosevelt's thinking, and to convey his ideas back to Roosevelt in a sort of indirect way. The most interesting story is the, uh, centers around Sir John Dill. How many of you have ever heard of Sir John Dill? A few hands go up. Uh, he was the uh, head of the imperial staff, the British imperial staff, uh, their top warrior, so to speak. But Churchill didn't like him. And when Churchill came to power, uh, he basically uh, wanted to send him to India, get him out of the way. <laughs> Marshall uh, and Dill were very close. They became very friendly, uh, and they respected each other greatly. They were very similar in, in character. And uh, so uh, Marshall prevailed on Churchill to establish a British staff office in Washington and put Dill in charge. So he kept Dill in Washington. And so they, they began a sort of a sub-Rosa uh, communication system. Dill was still very much respected by the imperial uh, uh, war staff in uh, Great Britain. So he would find out what Churchill was thinking because Churchill talked to his people. So uh, through, uh, through Dill, Marshall would find out what the British were thinking and what Churchill was thinking. And uh, although Roosevelt shared very little with Marshall, <laughs> surprisingly, and he had, uh, it was Roosevelt's uh, habit of getting his advice from many sources and keeping the sources divided and playing this, this game. Uh, this was his style. Uh, so one, one way uh, Marshall found out what Roosevelt was thinking is that Roosevelt would communicate with Churchill, Churchill would share his things with his staff, report to Dill because Dill's relationships were still very good. And through this method, Marshall would find out what Roosevelt was thinking. And he could also plant ideas with, uh, with uh, Churchill through Dill and the, and the imperial staff. And then Churchill would communicate with Roosevelt and say, what about these ideas? And it would be, a lot of them would be Marshall's ideas, but it would come, in, come through this uh, route. So Sir John Dill uh, became one of the unknown and great heroes of, of World War II. The other thing that Marshall did was he was a team player. He would not go out and uh, uh, talk to the, uh, the interventionist wing in Congress. He uh, stayed with the president's team. He didn't want to go faster than the president wanted to go. He, found, he saw his job as an educator and as an inside advocate of, of, uh, of strength. Now this was entirely consistent with Marshall's very uh, uh, strong belief throughout his life uh, in the Constitution and in a democratic elected leadership. Uh, he once said that uh, he, ad he admires uh, uh, democracy uh, greatly, but suffers from it interminably. <laughs> but he was uh, very, very loyal to the Constitution and to uh, elected uh, leadership. He never voted in an election, by the way. Uh, he believed that it, it somehow would affect his ability to serve. 
the nation at any given time if he was not in accord with political leadership. He uh, was very strong on that subject. Uh, what else did he do? Strategic air power. I mentioned uh, he, he made himself a student of air power. And the, the regular army looked at air power as uh, just uh, something that is tactical support of troops in the field. That's how the regular army thought about it. But what, uh, what he did was uh, uh, find out about strategic air power and traveled the country with Frank Andrews and Hap Arnold, particularly Andrews. And had not, Andrews not gone down in an air crash in 1943, it's very it's very possible we would have been talking about Frank Andrews instead of Dwight Eisenhower in history. Uh, because uh, Andrews, I think, was uh, Marshall's first choice to lead the European campaign. But that's another story. Uh, so he, he delegated authority to these top airmen. Uh, and they made all the decisions on design and production. Marshall supported every recommendation and would often chide uh, uh, Andrews and Arnold for not asking for more and made sure that they were aggressive in uh, making demands. He recruited pilots. He went way out uh, and to find pilots and to train them. Uh, so strategic air power, what else did he do? Uh, the, he improved the effectiveness of uh, the current army. Uh, in, proving National Guard training greatly. And he used his CCC methods. Uh, the CCC methods uh, were for, uh, for citizens, for uh, simple, in simple terms, to train, uh, train men to do jobs. And that's the way he began to train the National Guard. The National Guard received a, a great deal more training. Uh, and uh, they were not highly regarded by the regular army and uh, Marshall was their champion. Uh, he came up with a combined corps concept, uh, streamlining divisions and combining divisions in such a way with other support units, uh, air police, uh, medical uh, communications, uh, air uh, support, uh, and so forth and so on, to make these, uh, this core concept a, a totally functioning unit he also began to uh, hold multi-state uh, maneuvers, uh, both, I think, in the Carolinas, and the other one was down in Louisiana and Georgia. And these were multi-state maneuvers. They were very unpopular politically. Uh, but he insisted on them in order to improve mobility and coordination. And this is where Eisenhower shined. And, uh, and Marshall recognized Eisenhower's talent. He brought him into Washington, into the War Plans Division, liked his aggressive mindedness, finally set him, sent him to London to establish the, uh, uh, the headquarters there. He and Eisenhower and Churchill became very close. Then he sent him to North Africa to lead that campaign. And then in 1943, late 43, when Roosevelt had to decide who was going to lead the European uh, campaign. Uh, and the assumption was it would be Marshall. Uh, and uh, uh, Roosevelt sent many people to uh, Marshall to sound them out. 
because uh, Roosevelt's thinking was if, if Marshall was at all interested, he would have the job. All he had to do was indicate his interest. Marshall would not do that. He didn't believe it was his role. He told Hopkins, look, this war is not about George Marshall. This war is about winning with in, in, in the fastest way and with the, with the least cost. Uh, we've got to do this. Uh, I'm, I'm just a, a servant. And uh, he, uh, he convinced uh, Roosevelt, finally. Roosevelt didn't want to see him, uh, to lose him from Washington. Pershing told Roosevelt that, that only Marshall could run a two-front war, that no one else had that talent, uh, to keep him in Washington. And that's finally what Roosevelt did. And then he asked Marshall who should lead uh, Operation Overlord, the attack on Europe. And he said, Eisenhower. Uh, another thing that uh, he did was he strengthened the Brits greatly. He stretched the law to uh, to get them planes, uh, to get them uh, to get them ordnance, uh, to uh, to help them train pilots. He did whatever he could, and the British were extremely grateful. The British were not that popular with the American uh, military. Um, but Marshall was a, a, a great uh, ally of the Brits. That was based on his World War I experience with the British and the French. Marshall taught himself French. In China, he taught himself uh, Mandarin. Uh, and he was a, a rather mediocre student. <laughs> he, was not, he was not a scholar. He was not... Uh, that's another story. <laughs> too, too many stories. So anyway, the result of all this activity was uh, Army uh, effectiveness was greatly increased. More combat units were uh, uh, created. The next thing that Marshall attempted to do was have a balanced buildup of troop numbers. Uh, so the first thing he did, he became uh, Roosevelt's point man in Congress because he was so popular with both with both wings of Congress, both sides of the aisle, because he was truthful. And he would just level with them all the time. And they trusted him. Uh, so Roosevelt made Marshall his point man to Congress. And so Marshall was very effective at uh, lobbying. And he, uh, he got the National Defense Act changed, increased the numbers. Uh, and he uh, recruited heavily volunteers and then uh, the draft came along. This was 1940, and Roosevelt wanted the draft. Marshall didn't want the draft. He wanted the uh, he wanted universal military training. He did not want too rapid a buildup of manpower. Why? Because he would have to cannibalize his fighting units in order to use his trainers uh, to to deal with these hundreds and thousands and perhaps millions of people of men coming online that needed to be trained. So he wanted a gradual buildup, uh, if possible. He wasn't able to achieve that. Uh, so one thing that caused him to be successful was uh, uh, the Nazis. The Nazis walked into many countries, and uh, they began to, uh, by their actions, uh, move uh, Congress uh, to a position of wanting to get involved. So you get all these pro-French, pro-British, pro-Dutch, 
and so forth, uh, members of Congress who begin to see the results of Nazi aggression and begin to uh, change their tune. But the, as he feared, uh, the buildup was too rapid. The army was compromised. It grew to eight times its size. When he took over in 39, by 41, it was eight times the size that it had been. Uh, and he had to manage. Most of his time was spent managing the training, building bases, uh, race relations were a problem. Uh, there were all of these sorts of problems that required constant management. Uh, so that was a, a, a real headache uh, for him and slowed down our preparation, no, no question about it. The next thing he wanted to do was get good people. How are we doing on time? Pretty much over. He wanted to get good... <laughs> He wanted to get good people, and he pulled out that little black book. And uh, here's another story i got to tell you. Uh, he developed new guidelines for combat command. He said this was the most difficult act he had ever done uh, because he had to tell all his old friends, all his Army comrades, no, you can't be uh, com uh, combat commanders. You're too old. 50-year-old uh, limit. Uh, vigor was... Uh, Terribly important. We're not going to judge you on your past record. We're going to judge you on your present capacity and your future promise. Well, you can imagine uh, he was getting a lot of heat from a lot of people. So he, uh, there was a firestorm of protest. He was in intense pain. He established what was called a plucking board. And these were uh, retired officers who uh, uh, could uh, make those decisions and, and spread the bad news. And they developed an exception policy for exceptional vigor for, for officers who may be more than 50 years old. So Patton was in. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, another aspect of uh, Marshall's character. He was turning down all these officers. Marshall himself was 58 years old at this time, 59 by this time. He offered, he sent to uh, Roosevelt a letter of resignation. He said, I am much older than 50 years old, uh, and uh, I have a, a job that requires a lot of vigor, and uh, I'm too old for this job, so please accept my letter of recommendation. Uh, Roosevelt threw it in the trash can. And then Marshall went to see the president a few days later and gave him a second letter and uh, Roosevelt th threw it away and told him to go back to work. So he gave up at that point. But it's, a, it's an illustration of Marshall's fair-mindedness and his absolute faith in, in justice. Uh, then another thing he did was get ready for the reorganization that was coming. Now the problem was you can't reorganize in peacetime. Uh, you, have to, you have to have a lot of law changes. You've got to uh, disturb a lot of political chickens out there uh, and get things in order in order to, uh, uh, to, to, to move all these uh, people who have vested interests uh, aside in order to make the changes. So uh, even though he was able to gain more executive power within the War Department, thanks uh, to FDR's appointment of Hen Henry Stimson, as Secretary of War, they got rid of Woodring and they straightened out the mess and Stimson was a strong advocate for preparation. Uh, so that helped a lot. 
and he got more executive power so that the general staff could start not, not just advising, but actually directing and following up and implementing, streamlined decision-making within the chief of staff office, and then they developed three reorganization plans and debated them. So they had them ready, and they were not just reorganization plans. These were developed in 1940 and 41, mostly 41. They were not just plans, but they came with all the legislation. That they prepared the legislation that was needed, and they prepared the executive orders, and all they needed was one ingredient. And what is that? War. As soon as war started, the politics would change. They could get what they want. And so when war came, um, the whole uh, army was reorganized. The Department of War was reorganized. So these were uh, some of the things he did. Uh, there are other things. Uh, he, attention to morale, it was always a big item. They established uh, a chaplain's corps, or they already established, but they enlarged it greatly, made sure that more denominations were recognized. Uh, recreation, entertainment, uh, the USO, this was a martial idea. Uh, uh, great emphasis on supplies. Never put on a pair of wet socks. That was a martial <laughs> mandate for the uh, field troops. Uh, and family support, a strong interest in family maintenance. Uh, he made constant visits to training bases. And who, who would he talk to when he went to the training bases? The rank and file soldiers. How are you being treated? And they made copious notes. And if you, didn't, if you weren't good to your troops, you didn't advance in the Army. You didn't get promoted. He called it the hardest period of my life. His chief of personnel on the general staff, John Hildring, said on, New on uh, Pearl Harbor Day, uh, the calmest man in the War Department was George Marshall. He was a man perfectly at ease, giving orders, went home uh, at a reasonable time, got to sleep, <laughs> uh, was in control. Uh, I think he was relieved. I don't know, of course. Uh, I don't talk to George anymore. <laughs> but uh, my understanding and, and the sense of it was that he had passed through this period of his life. Now he had what he needed, total support, and he could concentrate on waging and winning. Uh, was what he always wanted to do. So in two years, he had built a strong army. He had gained con uh, uh, the confidence of the president, the Congress, the public, the British. He laid the foundation for the uh, the Euro European alliance for the European uh, alliance for the uh, Atlantic alliance. He had established U.S. air power. Uh, he had uh, helped the Brits hang on through uh, forty and forty one, uh, and that was uh, a pretty good record. Uh, and that I think I'll stop there and, and go to questions rather than demonstrating. Uh, saying what his greatest attributes as a leader were. There are many. I'll just open it up for questions at this point. Marshall was clearly a remarkable uh, fellow, and you touched on a number of his achievements. Uh, political, visionary, he had to manage a lot of personalities on all sides of the uh, aisle. 
Uh, how did he manage and how did he work with an egocentric like MacArthur? <laughs> uh, well, uh, toleration is a good word. Uh, he sent Hap Arnold out there in the midst of the war because MacArthur was uh, carping about too many of the uh, resources going to the Navy and, and other theaters of war. Uh, MacArthur was convinced that his uh, theater of war was the most important theater in the world. Uh, so he was always uh, uh, complaining. And he, and he made a trip, MacArthur made a trip to Washington to, to, uh, uh, to introduce his uh, complaints directly, and he told uh, Marshall what he wanted and so forth. And Marshall interrupted. Uh, uh, MacArthur made a reference to, uh, uh, to his staff. And uh, Marshall interrupted him, him and said, General, you don't have a staff. You have a court. <laughs> One of uh, one of Marshall's people, it may have been Merrill Pascoe from uh, from uh, Richmond, uh, said that he used he heard Marshall use some of his greatest profanity in talking about about uh, MacArthur. He called him a very very difficult man. <laughs> How did he deal with him? Uh, one thing he did was. Uh, he was unhappy with the way uh, MacArthur used his staff, so he he had these sort of psycho sycophants that would do whatever, would sit around and listen to MacArthur and do what, do his bidding. So he made sure that MacArthur uh, that he sent MacArthur some of the very best people he had. So uh, uh, George Kenney was sent out as the uh, chief airman in the Pacific Southwest, became uh, the uh, head of the air. Uh, command, and he was a, a remarkable airman. So he, he made sure the, he, that he, he was sent some good people, and that was one way he, he uh, controlled them. But that's a, long, that's a great question, which involves a, uh, a, a long litany of relationships that they had. What were his relations with de Gaulle and Stalin? Interesting. Uh, Stalin, first. In 1937, Marshall was at uh, Vancouver Barracks in uh, Vancouver, Washington, and uh, w where he was usually off with the CCC somewhere, but at this particular occasion, he was home in the barracks, and he got a call that uh, there was a Russian plane landing at uh, the field there. I think it was called Pearson Field in uh, Vancouver. And this was a uh, Soviet pilots who were navigating across the uh, Arctic uh, on the first cross-Arctic flight uh, to get to San Francisco. And they ran out of uh, fuel, and they landed there. Marshall went and got them, made sure that they were protected, brought them to his house, made sure they had baths, fed them, gave them vodka, <laughs> kept the press away. Uh, Stalin uh, became an absolute devotee of Marshall from that time. <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, Mar uh, Stalin had great respect for, uh, uh, for Marshall. Uh, the relationships were, were cool, uh, but distant because uh, 
there, there weren't too many occasions when they, when they got together. Uh, but Marshall was, to, was very helpful in making sure that the Russians were supplied a lot of the tanks and other goods that they needed in order to keep that Eastern Front going. Marshall understood the huge importance of the Eastern Front and uh, how vital it was to our being able to survive in the West. Now, you, you asked about not only Stalin, but, oh, de Gaulle, oh. <laughs> a, very, a very imperious personality. Uh, they tolerated him. I think Eisenhower had, Eisenhower had much more trouble than Marshall with him because he dealt closely with de Gaulle. And he was uh, a, a constantly uh, uh, in conflict with, with de Gaulle. Uh, perhaps a little unfairly, because uh, de Gaulle was, uh, was very important to French resistance, but he had, he had attitudes that were, made it very difficult to deal with. Uh, and uh, I think Marshall's uh, relations with de Gaulle were strained, as, as were Eisenhower's. You talked about the isolationism in this country that Marshall had to deal with, and I can't help but think and have for a long time how the Japanese really messed up by bombing Pearl Harbor and it changed things around, of course, the rest is history. I can't help but think that the, the events of last Friday, I hope, might turn the, unite the world against ISIS with much the same result. Hmm. It's just an interesting parallel, not too close to your subject, but I just can't help but think of the two, the comparison of those two things. It's a, it's a, a timely observation. Uh, one thing that, that Marshall always did was talk about the uh, old examples never sufficing. You, you had to prepare to fight the prospective enemy. And it's clear that Marshall would not be moving toward large armaments and huge armies I think he would be focusing on intelligence and on uh, training people uh, to infiltrate. Language capabilities would be very high on his list. Uh, he, was a great, he was a great advocate of language. He taught, and when he was in China, he made sure that all his officers learned Chinese and studied Chinese culture. Uh, so it gives you some insight into how he would uh, approach, I think, uh, his dealings with the Middle East. Uh, I think he had a great respect for culture and and uh, and for the for the uh, uh, diversity and complexity of uh, of these relations. Yes. Um, what was Marshall's relationships with the uh, academy guys? Uh, he being a VM, VM, VMI graduate and most of the other general officers being apparently he never he never worried about it uh, he didn't he he never uh, talked about VMI in particular he had many friends there uh, but his appointments never reflected any consideration of uh, where the officers uh, were coming from where their education was where the, where their background was he had applied to uh, he wanted to apply to West Point and uh, he was told uh, that he wasn't going to be qualified because he was, was a poor student. And his, one of the motivations, an interesting story, one of, one of his motivations uh, to go to uh, VMI was uh, he overheard a conversation between his, steward, his brother Stuart and his mother. Uh, Stuart was about six years older than George. 
and Stuart had gone to BMI. And they were talking in the living room and he was down the hallway listening. And he heard uh, Stuart plead with his mother not to send George. Don't let George go to VMI, he'll disgrace the family. And, <laughs> so, and as late as, toward the, at the very end of his life, he told Pogue, he said, that was my greatest motivation for going into the mid so I could stick it in Stuart's eye. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, just a quick question about uh, Marshall's influence on Eisenhower after the incidents with uh, Patton. When Patton oh, I'm, I'm looking for the questioner. Uh, oh, hold oh, on. Okay. Oh, okay. Right here. Okay. Want me to repeat? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm just saying I'm wondering about uh, Marshall's influence on Eisenhower, about Eisenhower's decision how to treat Patton after he slapped those soldiers. Well, uh, Marshall's style was to delegate those sorts of things to his field commanders, so he left that for, uh, uh, for Eisenhower to deal with. But interesting, uh, you, you know, when, when uh, he originally appointed uh, Patton to lead a tank division in, in Africa in 42, uh, Patton responded to Marshall uh, saying, thank you very much, General. Could I command a corps and the next thing that Patton knew was he was issued an order to go to California to run a tank base. <laughs> and he sent Marshall a groveling telegram <laughs> apologizing and, and doing, offering to do whatever he could uh, to help the war effort in North Africa. Marshall considered Patton our best fighting soldier, but he also knew he was could be nuts, he could be a crazy <laughs> character. So he put him under Bradley and Bradley under Eisenhower and he was confident that they would keep him in line. Use his talents but control this, this guy. One final Not a real serious question, but uh, we know that uh, Eisenhower loved to play golf and he had a mistress on the side and Roosevelt liked to sneak out of the Capitol and drive around in his Packard and he had a mistress on the side. Uh, we know that now that Marshall had two uh, nervous breakdowns because he worked so hard, what did he do for fun? <laughs> well, I know he wrote Herd on Eisenhower. <laughs> he, uh, he told Eisenhower in no, no uncertain terms that, uh, to break off his relationship and to come back, and, uh, come back home and behave himself. Um, he was very... Uh, very strict on that score. He did have a very good time, however, in, in London after World War One. He, he, he and Pershing were, at that time he was an aide to Pershing and they were visiting European capitals and a lot of partying and they had a lot of, uh, a lot of fun. Uh, but he wasn't a guy that, uh, he liked to, to watch westerns at home. Uh, he didn't like to uh, social events. He never joined the, the Democratic Party. He never went to party functions. Uh, he liked to go home and, and watch his, the Westerns and read, and uh, he and uh, uh, Catherine uh, would, uh, would sit at home and, and play games and, and do a lot of reading. He was very quiet uh, in that way. Thank you. Very much. Thank you.
Thank you very much.